this, when, it, when it comes to my pastoral role here at North Cross, this was one of my favorite weeks of the year. Because uh, for those in the room, we had just talked about how there's, we, we just celebrated the faith of our eighth graders with a special service yesterday. Well, one of the things leading up to our special confirmation service each year is I get to meet individually with all of the eighth graders and their parents for what we call just a 30-minute confirmation meeting. The purpose of this meeting is to ask the students some questions. You know, some of us had to do this in front of the entire church back in the day, right? Where it's the public examination. They make sure that you know your stuff. Uh, we do it in a more private setting here at North Cross. But part of the meeting is I ask them some questions, and they have a chance to put their faith into words, and uh, they have a chance just to, sh- to share what they learn and, and what they believe. But then my favorite part of this meeting with the eighth grader and their parents is when I ask the parents some questions. And I can't tell you everything I say because it's kind of a secret and it's a rite of passage and I want to keep the parents in suspense. But one question I ask the parents is, as you look at your eighth grader, what's a strength that you see in them and how do you see that play out in their life? Now, keep in mind, this is right after the eighth grader has had to talk about their faith and so they're completely a nervous wreck. But as soon as I ask the parents, to highlight a a gift or an ability in their eighth grader, you should see the eyes of that eighth grader light up. Like, I wonder what mom and dad are going to say about me. Like, ooh, I can't wait to hear what they have to say. And after a few moments of thought, the parents always mention something, and you can just see the, the, the eyes light up. Like, they're so, I don't know if it's a inner pride, like a good kind of pride type thing, but they're being filled up in that moment as their parents speak into their life. And then I'm always deliberate with this next part. Whatever the parents say, I am sure to affirm. I say something like this, you know, I only see a fraction of what you see as parents, but what you just told me, I can see that too. And here's how I've seen it played out on Wednesday nights here at church. And their heart just gets so big in that moment, you can see the glow in their eyes. And each year this happens, it's one of my favorite weeks of the year, each year this happens, it reminds me of a simple truth that all of us experience at one time or another. It's that words have power. You've experienced this for the positive and probably for the negative. And I've shared several stories recently of how people who have spoken into my life have changed it for the better. I think of the soccer coach in high school who I thought I was just an average player, but towards the end of the season, he said, Matt, just so you know, I'm looking into some potential scholarships and some colleges for you. I'm like, what? Wow. Sometimes people can speak into your life in a way, and just words have power. And I've always wondered why this is the case. How can, why is it that words can make your day or break your day? And the more I think about it, the more I go back to how the Bible begins. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. The whole story of Genesis 1 is that in the beginning there was nothing until something happened. There was nothing until God came down from heaven with a mighty axe and slashed creation into existence with a mighty act of power. No, We don't see some amazing act of power in Genesis chapter one and two. How do you fill in the blank? There was nothing until God, I mean, I got some teaching to do, spoke. I've heard it, yeah. There there was nothing until God spoke. Let there be land, let there be vegetation, let there be animal. Simply by speaking it, God brought it into reality. Our creation is the 
is the aftermath of God speaking it into existence. And in a very small way, in a very small way, we as his creatures still have some of that in us. The words you speak to someone else can shape in a small way their perceived reality, for better or for worse. Where I want to go with this today is that you get to choose the words that you live by. Just because someone says something to you doesn't mean you have to make it yours. In fact, maybe there's times in your life when you've received criticism and your reaction was to let it bounce right off of you because you believed those were not words meant for you. You get to choose the words that you live by. But I want to really emphasize why this is so important to get this right, and it's number one for our sheets today. The words that you decide to live by are writing the story of your life. When you take in someone's words of advice and you appropriate them, in some ways it can shape the direction of your life. When you take someone's words of criticism personally and it hurts, it can put a roadblock in front of you to where you had been intending to go. The words that speak into your life, you get to choose which ones to live by. But the words you do live by are writing the story of your life. In fact, one of the things I love, maybe the second favorite thing about my ministry at North Cross is getting to know people through our starting point class, our nine-week starting point group. And as part of that, we invite people to share a faith story, just you know, how has your faith been shaped and how did you get to where you're at today? And I always hear stories of people telling how there was a person who came into their life and because of their advice, because of their encouragement, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for them. The words you live by are writing the story of your life. And I probably don't need to do this next part, but this is like the last you know, insight I have, and then I'm going to get out of the way and just let Jesus speak into this. But it's important for us, I think, to recognize where these voices can come from and where these words can come from. And the, the long story short, they come from everywhere. Um, here's just a few categories. Some words are words of fun, like friends, peers, neighbors. It's very short term. Um, these are words that say, well, um, let's go boating today. Okay, fine. Um, words of fun can, can be words that you live by. Sometimes decisions to have fun can line up well for a long-term future, and sometimes short-term fun is not long-term good. But those can be words that you live by. The next one is, is fear. And I think the best way to categorize this one is that sometimes, you know, I ask my kids, well, why do you do that? And their answer is, everyone's doing it. And I have not met everyone yet, but apparently... Apparently, if everyone is doing something, you're going to be afraid to not do it because you might be missing out on something. Sometimes enemies can also leverage fear to try to push you in a certain direction. There are words of fear that if you live by them, it will be a prison. You'll be conforming out of fear, not out of joy. This third one is, I think, the most common one for many of us, the, 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 the voice of guilt most often, this is an inner voice that comes from you. I've, I've heard several podcasts recently where a lot of people are, sh are sharing, you know what, the, the most criticism that I receive any week is from my own voice, my own thoughts, my own mind. And sometimes you can be your own worst criticizer. So guilt can be a powerful word to live by, but 
again, that puts you in a prison. And since we're in church, I figured let's throw a fourth thing up here. You know, there's the voice of God, but unfortunately, I think the common idea is that God is the worst accumulation of all three of those previous things. God just wants to take your fun away. God just wants to, to make you afraid of him. God just wants to make you feel really guilty and really bad for everything that you've done. So if you want to live with that kind of a God, go for it. But what I want to show you today is a different version of God, the, the, the real version of God. And this is something that Jesus really had to stop and teach people about. So as we go forward in the message, maybe this, is just a, this next one is, is just a question for you to think about. And this is so much more than a 10-second question to think about on a Sunday morning. I hope that this question is something that you wrestle with throughout the, this week, and maybe even longer. I, this is a question that I wrestled with this week. If words are powerful, and if you get to choose the words you live by, and if the words you live by are writing your story... Well, when it comes to your story, who's the one holding the pen? Who's writing in your book right now? Whose words, whose influence is guiding you and shaping your decisions? And this is a complicated question because it's not just like there's one voice speaking into you, but like I showed previously, there's all sorts of different voices that can influence different areas of life. So this isn't just a 10-second question. This is something to, to meditate on, to think on. And maybe on Wednesday morning when you're wondering, why am I saying this? Or why was I crabby? Or why did I demand that this happen the way it did? The, the, the answer isn't, well, why did I do it? The, the answer goes back to, whose words am I living by? This is a, a tricky thing, and I'm going to get out of the way right now because I can't begin to navigate us through this, but thankfully Jesus did, and Jesus does. We're going to jump into John chapter 6, where Jesus talks about this whole concept or this whole idea of words that you live by. And there were two different people in John chapter 6 that we're going to see. On the one side, there were people who decided that no matter what, Jesus' words would be the words that they lived by. But the vast majority of people in John 6 had the opposite response. They decided to go elsewhere for their fun, for their alleviation from fear, and for their release from guilt. So in John chapter 6, I just want to set this up real quickly and then get to the good stuff. Um, and here's a precursor. I preached on this a few years ago, and someone came up to me after the, the service because one of the verses we looked at was John chapter 6, verse 66. And they asked me, is, is there something wrong with that verse? So we're going to cover that verse again today, so just to get the distraction out of the way. Jesus did not number these verses. Some guy, several, several centuries ago, sat down and decided to put chapters and verses in each one. I don't know why he made John 6 so long, but it does reach verse 66. So there's no significance behind John 6, 66. So just get that distraction out of the way. Um, the other thing is that when it comes to John chapter 6, it's a really busy chapter. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. It was a super busy day for Jesus. Long story short, he was being a long-winded preacher, he was talking all day long, teaching the people, and he was good at it because nobody was leaving. In fact, more people kept coming and coming and coming to the point where it was getting late in the day, and there were 5,000 men plus women and children throughout the crowd, and the disciples come up to Jesus, and they come to Jesus and say, you need to wrap this up. People are hungry. They need to go home. Jesus said, you bring up a good point. They're hungry. Hey, hey, 12, you feed them. 
And so I think it was a joke. They brought back, you know, five loaves of bread and two fish. And they said, here, here Jesus, you, we, we got all the food we could get. And then Jesus, through a miracle, makes that food into enough for everyone so that there was 12 baskets of food left over. The people, the crowd, they recognized what had happened and they came to a great conclusion. As Jesus fed thousands of people, they realized this guy has the ability and the will to set us up for life. So many people wanted to elevate him as their king and make him in charge. Jesus recognized this and said, that's not what I came for. I didn't come to give you meal after meal after meal. I didn't come to prolong your life or improve the quality of your life. By the way, I think we'd, we would do well today to remember God isn't here to provide for our life or to improve the quality of our life. Jesus had to tell the crowd in John 6, I came for eternal life. And if I'm too focused on giving you bread and fish every day, I can't do the greater thing that I came to do. So this is me paraphrasing, but Jesus basically told them, if, if you expect another meal, you're expecting too little of me. If you come to me for a meal again, you're basically just going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood because I'm out. I'm not going to feed you anymore. I did not come to, to prolong your earthly life. I came to give you eternal life. And this is the reaction of the crowd in John chapter 6, verse 60. They said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? It's hard when, when someone called Jesus can do anything for you, but, but he doesn't. And instead of making your life easier or better, instead he says, your, your life is going to be harder. It's not that the teaching was offensive. It's not that the teaching was like embarrassing, like, oh, I hope my neighbors don't find out. It was hard. It was asking a lot of the people to buy into this idea that their life would be continually hard, that there would be no benefit in the short term, but that there was this supposed long-term fulfillment. You know, we're talking about words to live by. We're talking about the words that write your book. The best way I could think to illustrate this is um, how books are, are made. I don't like to read books. I don't know if any of you do. I, I, I tend to avoid reading. I, I like to skim, get the high points, you know, make notes and stuff like that. And so for me, the absolute worst part of a book is the preface. That part of the book has no purpose. I'm sorry. Why create like 10 pages of preface that there's no characters being explained, there's no plots untwisted, there's no tensions or conflicts, there's no resolutions, there's no climax, there's nothing in the preface that has any bearing on the book whatsoever. All it does is it tells you where the book came from and why it's here. I skip it every single time. I don't know if maybe some of you do that too. I can't stand the preface. The point is this, what Jesus had to teach those people and what he had to teach me this week is that a lot of times we can view our life here on earth like this big, long novel with you know, the chapter of childhood and the chapter of high school and the chapter of college and the chapter of single life. And you know, there's all these chapters that make up our lives. In reality, what Jesus had to tell people is that when it comes to your life, right now we're in the preface. Your birth to your earthly death, it's kind of like the preface. It's this small little part, and the true story, the fullness of what God created you for, has yet to be revealed. 
But the good news that we'll see in just a moment is that the hero, in a very unlikely way, made his way into your preface. Number three, I think the challenge for us is that we need to see past our preface when we decide which words we live by. We can be so consumed by, why doesn't God do this for me? Or why doesn't he take this away from me? Or why is he allowing this to happen? Why won't he feed me? And I think of the thousands of people that Jesus fed that day. How many of them were homeless? How many of them had no meal to go home to? Jesus was their only hope. And yet he said, no. Too often, if we're focused on the preface of our book, we'll miss the bigger picture of what Jesus really came to do. He came not to be the hero of your preface. He came to be the hero of your story. And as we continue in John chapter 6, that's what he really wanted to show the people in that day. And though he was a convincing and compelling uh, preacher, unfortunately, his truth and his words did not win many people over. Let me show you that. In John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus, talking to the crowd, the thousands of people who were looking for another meal, Jesus told them, the Spirit... The Spirit gives life. The Spirit is about the whole book, not just the the small part. The the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. It's the preface. The the earthly, bodily things that we need, this is just the preface. It, It counts for nothing. And Jesus says, the words I have spoken to you today, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe and As Jesus goes on, you know, it's pretty clear. He's mentioning people like Judas, who were all about the preface. They weren't, he wasn't about the big story. There are some of you who do not believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And this is so important that when it comes to our belief in Jesus or our faith in him, I can't convince you to believe in him. Faith is a gift from God. It's something that he works in you. It's like you have to be taken out of your story to see that there's a bigger story. Uh, In some places, Jesus talks about it as being born again or being brought into a new kingdom, being made a citizen of a new place. You don't see it until you're brought into it. And Jesus said, this is what has to happen for you. The Father can enable you to see well past your preface to see the bigger picture here. And just for the sake of continuing this whole analogy with books and stuff, you know, there's another, you know, conviction moment for me as I read Jesus' words, and I saw him trying to show the bigger picture, but people like me can be consumed by the short term. Jesus basically told them, look, when it comes to your daily life, you're going to have a lot of stories that can come up in your, you know, daily life, but, but pay attention to who the main character is, pay attention to who the hero is. And if I could put it in just a few words, the, the hero of the story, the hero of your story, Jesus is the hero, not you. Jesus is the hero of your story. He is not like a footnote in it. And I'm so guilty of this. Maybe you are too. But I, like I'm thinking of my personal story like, oh, Matt did this today. He did all these things for, for these people and this person. And, but then Matt did something bad. And so footnote, Matt prayed to God and asked for forgiveness. And then the story goes on. But then Matt had a really good day. He was an awesome, awesome husband. And, you know, he, he actually did a good parenting move and did something right. And so Matt paused to say a prayer of thanks to God. And footnote, prayed to Jesus. 
I, I, I find myself doing this so often where, you know, Jesus is kind of a footnote in the story, but what would it look like if he's the hero? What would it look like for you if he's the hero? It's not about your will being done. It's about God's will being done. What would that look like on a Monday morning? That question brought some conviction to me, but then it also brought me to some very good news. I have a father in heaven who wants to be a part of my story and yours too. And you have a hero who doesn't just show up later once you've lost all hope and all hope is lost, but you have a hero who showed up in your preface to intervene and to begin to write things in a different way. Jesus tried to tell those people, I'm not a footnote. I'm not just a guy who shows up to provide a meal and then you go on with your life and then I show up and provide a meal and you go on with your life. I am your life. I am the way. And I am the truth. But as Jesus taught this more and more, here's what happened. John 6 verse, that one. From this time, many of his disciples turned back. Disciples, the broad term, like the thousands of people following him. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And he turns to his 12. For a while, as I read this to myself, I always thought it was like a whimpering voice. You know, like a middle schooler. You don't want to leave me too, do you? I wasn't sure like how to phrase it, but it wasn't phrased like that. Jesus said to them, you don't want to leave me too, do you? Talking to his 12, talking to his closest ones. And for, for me, it's not like a whiny, like, oh, he needs them to continue to do what he needs to do. But it's more like a parent who's asking their child if they really want to make that same decision again that led them into trouble the first time. He's not going to make the decision for them, but he has to ask. You're not going to leave too, are you? You're not going to follow them, are you? And I don't think they had much time to answer because what we see is that Simon Peter gives a very quick answer. And I think if Peter had just held off, we might have heard some different answers from some of the other 11. But Simon Peter, being the bold man he did, actually spoke very suddenly and didn't give them time to respond. So here's how he responded. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? He's playing this out in his mind. We could return to our fishing business and we could turn to our, you know, our, our company, our employers, our employees, and we could you know, ask them what they want to do and we could just let them lay out the plan for our life. We could live by their words. Some of us could return to tax collecting, you know, pick up the old booth again and keep, keep collecting taxes like we did before, but that's not much of a plan, a life plan. Those aren't many words to live by. And as Peter is playing this out, he basically responds to Jesus' question with a question. To whom shall we go? You have the words, not just of daily life. We recognize you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe better. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Mark that in your Bible because this is one of the few places Peter gets it right. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We know that you're the hero, not us. We know we could go and do other things with our lives, but why would we forfeit the words of life, eternal life, that you have for us 
today. And don't get Peter wrong, he's not perfect. He's gonna totally mess up later. As Jesus is arrested, he's gonna deny even knowing Jesus several times. Peter didn't know exactly how things were gonna unfold. In fact, as the thousands of people are leaving Jesus and his disciples, so also leaving is the defensive shield that was between Jesus and the people who wanted him dead. The 12 did not know how this was going to play out. But in essence, what Peter said was this. He said, we're not completely sure how this will all turn out, but we want you to keep the pen. You have the words of eternal life. And we don't know how our story is going to end or continue, but we know who we want to hold on to the pen. And that is you. There's so much in this section for me to to think about because like the people in John 6, I can be so focused on the preface of my book, but when I see past the preface, I can see a greater hero emerge, the one who is called the Holy One of God, who entered into my story to rewrite it, to bring forgiveness, and to bring another chapter that I haven't even seen yet. In Peter's terms, or in Jesus' terms, you could say, Jesus kind of entered your story and he stole the pen. Peter is saying, go ahead and keep it. We want you to continue leading us. You have the words to live by. So as we wrap up this message, I want to make it super practical because I know a lot of the stuff we've been talking about is a lot of principles and there's been a lot of analogies to you know, writing a book and stuff. So maybe there's already been some takeaways for some of you. Like some of us need to think about who's holding the pen right now and what would it take to take that pen and put it somewhere else, to put it in the hands of Jesus. So here's one practical way to do that, and I'll, I'll kind of phrase it with number four on your sheets, and then I'll give an example of what it looks like. Would you continually let God edit the words you live by? Continually let him edit them, which means as you are kind of thinking through the story of your life and why you do the things you do and whose words you're living by, would you hold those words up to God and say, is this right? Would you edit this for me? More than that, God, would you take away the words that I've been living by that are nothing but lies, and would you replace them with truth, with real words that I can live by, not just for this life, but forever? And here's a practical way of of what that looks like. Maybe it looks like coming up with your own words that you can declare over yourself each day. Some of the lies I have to counteract are, you know, I I have to be accepted by everyone. And if I'm not, then I'm doing something wrong. I need to replace that with a declaration from God. I am accepted by God as his son, as a child of God, because of what Jesus did for me. I don't need to be accepted by everyone. I can't be accepted by everyone, but I am accepted by God. What words do you need to start declaring to yourself this week? Words that you can live by. Maybe it's exposing the guilt in your heart, the, the guilt that says, I'm, I'm horrible, I'm, I'm no good, no one can love me, I'm pitiful. Would you let God edit those words and he'll replace them with something better? You're loved. You're forgiven. Your value is not determined by what you've done in the past. Your value was determined by what Jesus did on a cross. Your value is based on what God was willing to pay for you. You are priceless. You are loved. Your purpose is not limited by your potential or your abilities. Your purpose is focused on the greater story of the eternity that God has for you. My body matters to God. 
My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and because of that, my body matters to me too. As you think through your own personal daily life, would you gravitate towards the words that God declares over you? As you hold up your heart to him, expose the things that you've been living by, ask God, would you help me? Give me wisdom. God loves it when you ask for wisdom. Would you give me wisdom to edit the words I'm living by? Would you replace the lies with your truth so that as Jesus said, I may know the truth and it will set me free. Yesterday was really cool to see the, the eighth graders. They were so nervous. They were standing up here sharing their statement of faith. A couple of years ago, we recorded all of them ahead of time and just showed the recordings and they were mad. Um, they had to give them live, but it was so cool watching the eighth graders. They, they presented their statement of faith. They, they read it out loud for everyone in the room. And what I hope for each and every one of them is that these weren't just words that they wrote down and had to say, but I hope that they were words to live by. Maybe a good exercise for us this week. Just start with one. Write down a sentence, a declaration that God makes over you, a promise that he makes in his word. I am loved. I am forgiven. Let God's words be the words you live by. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's a lot of different voices in this world from the everyone's that we hear to the words that come from our own hearts and minds. And each one of us is a little bit different in how those voices can affect us. But what I know is that for me and for everyone, there are words we're living by that aren't entirely true. Some of them are flat out lies. Some of them are words designed by the evil one himself, designed to have us live a life of guilt and a life of fear. I pray that you would fill us with wisdom this week so that we can identify where those voices are coming from. Give us the courage to take a step, to take the pen out of the hand where it doesn't belong. A step where we're not sure where we will receive guidance, but we know that we have our acceptance from you. Give us the courage to be able to look into our hearts this week and to simply ask you to edit the words that we live by. Where necessary, take them away and replace them with your declarations over us. The words we live by are writing the stories of our lives, and I know that you want your grace and your peace to be the focal point of that story. Let Jesus be our hero. Let him be the heart and core of our belief so that as we ponder his life and death and resurrection, we may have a hope that is too big for this life to contain, but rather we have a hope that endures with him forever. Give everyone here a measure of your blessing this week as we go about the hard work of looking at the words we live by. Amen.